0: Hello, and welcome to the Blue Marble podcast, a program of the Circle Sanctuary Network podcast CSNP. I am your host, Reverend Charlotte Baer, Circle Sanctuary Minister and Facilitator of the Green Faith Circle Ministry here at Circle Sanctuary, that is committed to education about the climate crisis, climate justice, and eco-activism today. In 1972, the last Apollo mission took a photo of the Earth that showed the big picture of our water based planet. This image was named the blue marble, and it was the very first time humankind had seen such a photo of our planet home as a whole. This photo has become the iconic image for the Earth Day movement and the environmental movement since then in 2022. The climate justice movement is now the overarching environmental and social justice movement combined that is fighting for the planet and for the systemic social and economic changes needed now to try to transform the crisis. The Blue Marble podcast looks at the many different aspects of this global movement, with guests who help us to understand what is happening and what we can do about it. My guest today is Reverend Andrew Baer. He happens to be my life partner, including as a professional colleague and co-minister. Andrew prefers pronouns he, him, I prefer she, her. We both live near the Monterey Bay, a world-renowned marine sanctuary on the central coast of California, on traditional and unceded lands of the Mutsin and Rumsen Ohlone. As ordained ministers for Circle Sanctuary. We both are very active with Circle's New Green Faith Circle Ministry, and we both are practitioners of nature spirituality, inspired by the beauty, sacredness, and intelligence of nature. In addition to paganism, Andrew is also a longtime practitioner of Buddhism and was also ordained by Zen master and peace, a- peace activist Thich Nhat Hanh into the Order of Interbeing. We have both been co-ordained as eco-ministers with the Order of Universal Interfaith, I. Both of us developed a love of nature early in our childhood development. I fell in love with the ocean, this marine planet and all the sea creatures. And Andrew's love of nature began with birds and the maple tree in his childhood backyard and his desire to learn more eventually led him to earn a bachelor's degree in environmental studies. He continues to learn about the science of climate change and its impacts. We have both become climate reality leaders trained by former Vice President and Nobel Laureate Al Gore, and we're certified climate communicators. I'm a mentor, an eco activist, animal rights activist, climate justice advocate. Andrew is an eco activist, organizer, and nonviolence trainer, engaging in direct nonviolent action for the earth. And he's also an animal rights activist and advocates for animals through his lifestyle and by engaging in outreach, advocacy, and marches. So today, We've come together dedicating this podcast to a nuts and bolts presentation of what we think everyone needs to know about global warming, its impact on the climate crisis and what it is, how it is caused, what is the crisis, how it impacts the life support systems on the planet and what we all need to do about it now. We're also going to address some different kinds of action that are proving to be effective in moving the needle on climate change versus those that frankly are not. Since I started the Blue Marble podcast this year, I had not yet had a program that might serve as a global warming primer. And so this program is dedicated to help you to connect the dots and to evaluate how you might want to engage in climate action. My disclaimer, neither one of us are professional climate scientists ourselves, but we are experienced climate communicators. So we hope the information we have today will serve so Andrew, welcome to Blue Marble Podcast. Thanks for joining me here today.
1: Uh, thank you and greetings, everyone. Uh, thank you, Charlotte, and the Circle Sanctuary community, for the opportunity to participate and share here on uh, Blue Marble Podcast today.
0: So the first question we're going to kick off with is: is you know we all know the climate has always changed but help us understand how does human caused global warming differ from natural fluctuations in the planet's temperature?
1: Um, really good question. And uh, be- before I get to this question, I wanna take a look at some basics of global warming. Uh, when sunlight reaches the earth's surface, it can either be reflected back into space or it can be absorbed by the earth. Uh, the incoming energy uh, that is absorbed by the Earth will warm the planet, and the energy that is reflected back to space does not warm the, the planet. It's a pretty simple concept. Uh, there is a, uh, within this, there is a natural cycle that changes our climate that's uh, caused by the Earth's orbit that changes the dist- distribution of the sun's energy across the Earth. And the largest natural variation in Earth's climate are between uh, ice ages and the warming periods. So with these natural changes in climate, we we also find related changes in the levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And uh, I should mention that greenhouse gases are a natural part of our atmosphere and planetary systems. And greenhouse gases uh, trap heat like a blanket and help our planet to have uh, the conditions that are supportive of life. So if we start increasing greenhouse gases beyond the usual levels, our planet will start warming in ways that can cause problems. Uh, The most important greenhouse gases related to climate change carbon dioxide, or CO2, and methane. So getting to the question of how do we know that the warming we're experiencing is due to human activity and not part of this natural cycle that sees swings between ice ages and warming periods on, uh, you know, vast, uh, through vast uh, earth time, uh, there are there are a few things I want to point out. Uh, the first is that when we look at the recent increase in global temperature, uh, though the increase in, in the warming planet uh, compared to the pre-industrial age, uh, which is before we started burning fossil fuels, uh, we find that there has not been a significant change in the Earth's orbit or in the sun's energy level So our warming climate is not caused by by that natural variation. Second of all, uh, the increase of CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere between uh, the year 1800 and today, which is We often look at the 19th century as pre-industrial age, an age of time before we were burning fossil fuels. So the increase in concentrations uh, since uh, 1800 and today are 70% larger than the increase that occurred when the earth climbed out of the last ice age and this modern increase of CO2 is 100 to 200 times faster than the natural variation between ice ages and warming periods. So we are experiencing an increase in CO2 that is much larger and faster than natural cycles. Uh, Third, I want to note that during all of the cycles, between ice ages and warming periods over the last million years, atmospheric CO2 never climbed higher than 300 parts per million. At the end of the last ice age, around uh, 20,000 years ago or so, it was 280 parts per million. Uh, This year, the CO2 level uh, was has reached 422 parts per million. So this uh, level that we're currently experiencing of 422 parts per million of CO2 is uh, higher than uh, the natural uh, range. And there's one more thing that I think is really the clincher is that uh, CO2 from different sources have uh, what's called a uh it's 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 a scientific technical term called isotopic fingerprints. so you can look at a molecule of co2 and the the makeup of that co2 will uh, be slightly different depending on the source of the co2 um, the co2 that we measure in the atmosphere now bears the isotopic fingerprint of CO2 that's emitted from, specifically from burning fossil fuels, and is not from what we would find in natural cycles. So these examples and more uh, leave uh, no doubt uh, among the scientific community that the increase in CO2 that's warming our planet are from humans burning fossil fuels, not from the natural cycle.
0: I'm going to jump on the back of that and talk about uh, major causes of human driven global warming that we've been able to decipher. Um, The number one source that Andrew alluded to is the burning of fossil fuels, and that means in particular uh, coal, it means oil, and it also includes natural gas. These are fossil fuel products that need to be extracted from the earth, they're heavily processed, and they're often transported uh, through pipelines or um, uh, on oil rigs and and ships and in other ways that that cause a lot of pollution in and of themselves. But um, the the entire process of manufacturing and distributing these sources of energy are uh, major contributors. We also have the whole problem of deforestation, which is very much connected to industrialized agriculture. These are other major sources. Deforestation, land that is being cleared deliberately or being lost due to wildfires um, is uh, catastrophic. Um, Industrial agriculture, animal agriculture, plant agriculture, which is uh, intentionally clearing huge areas of forestation in order to provide for grazing, Um, is is contributing to a lot of this. Um, You have other industrial processes. A big one that is uh, coming into the news a lot more now is petrochemicals and plastics, uh, which is a a business strategy um, now for fossil fuel companies that are uh, anticipating more pivot away from fossil fuel energy sources. They're heavily moving toward uh, increased production of petrochemicals and plastics. It's a derivative of the fossil fuel industry. Um, So you have transportation sector as well, whether it's air transport or land transport. This is another huge industry sector that has caused a lot of um, uh, atmospheric pollution, if you will, has everything to do with supply chains and how how we're um, you know, having to move supply ch- uh, chains um, to, to get goods and services, and these things are disrupted uh, for all kinds of reasons. So these are our major sources, but the number one of all of them, the largest source of global warming pollution is the burning of fossil fuels and carbon dioxide is being released into the atmosphere faster than at any time, in uh, at least in the last 66 million years um, and it's been said the energy trapped now by human-caused global warming pollution is equivalent to exploding 500,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs per day, 365 days per year. Um, James Hansen, the former director of NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, said that one, um, and that essentially we are treating our... uh, very thin shell of atmosphere as an open sewer, our atmosphere is an open sewer. Um, And as that becomes thicker and more heat becomes trapped, we are warming the atmosphere, which is warming the globe. Hence the term global warming, which is having all kinds of impacts on climate and other life support systems around the planet, things we're seeing. So that's kind of what we want to just walk you through. So you get a sense of that big picture, Andrew. Help us understand why what is so important about the number one point five Celsius you know we hear it all over the place uh, one point five what are the risks of going over one point five Celsius degrees?
1: Uh, when we hear about keeping average global temperatures to below one point five degrees and that's one point five degrees uh, centigrade or Celsius uh, we might uh first ask uh one point five degrees over what um, scientists measure the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere uh, in comparison to i mentioned this before uh pre industrial times and uh the most common time period they use as a baseline is between eighteen fifteen and nineteen hundred so they're comparing uh, current uh, levels of greenhouse gases to what existed in the atmosphere before the industrial revolution that started releasing a lot more uh, greenhouse gases uh, through the burning of fossil fuels. So uh, uh, that's the baseline. And the baseline allows us to compare our global temperatures and CO2 levels with this uh, time before we started burning fossil fuels. So now we talk a lot about 1.5 degrees centigrade, and this might not seem like a whole lot. I remember the first time I I started hearing about this, I could tell from the scientists that this was a big deal, but it's like 1.5 degrees doesn't sound like very much. I mean, this is I experience a greater temperature fluctuation any given day than than 1.5 degrees. So, why is – that was – my first impression was I was kind of confused about this. Um, So, while 1.5 degrees uh, centigrade might not seem like much, uh, remember that this is not referring to any given day's temperature fluctuations. Um, but rather the average global temperatures, which includes all temperatures, both summer, winter, northern and southern hemisphere, land, and ocean. And to give an example, the difference between an ice age and a warm period that we're in now uh, can be as little as four degrees centigrade. So a little bit uh, of uh, difference in the global average temperature change uh, can make a big difference in our experience. So the uh, 1.5 degree number came from a global uh, climate meeting called uh, COP21 that was held in Paris. And in that meeting, uh, the agreement to limit warming to 1.5 degrees became known as the Paris Accord. And some of us might be wondering, well, what is COP, as in COP21? Uh, COP is an abbreviation for uh, Conference of the Parties. And uh, the Conference of the Parties is the global decision-making body responsible for monitoring and reviewing the implementation of uh, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It brings together uh, almost 200 nations and territories, which are called parties, that have all signed on to this framework uh, convention. Uh, The COPs meet every year. They've met every year since 1995. So COP21 was the 21st meeting of the COP, which was held in Paris in 2015. And that is the meeting where uh, the, the participants from the nations of the world adopted this goal of limiting t- uh, global warming to 1.5. So something to keep in mind is that um, uh, 1.5 degrees of warming is not like an absolute line in the sand, but it is the, uh, a general indicator of where many of the impacts of global warming will go from uh, destructive to catastrophic. Consider that uh, right now, we have already reached global warming level of 1.1 degree over pre-industrial times. And at this level, the Earth is already experiencing pronounced effects of global warming. Consider the increase in drought, wildfires, floods, sea level rise, extreme rain events, stronger and more frequent hurricanes and destructive storms, extreme heat events, ocean acidification, melting glaciers, melting ice caps, famine, water scarcity, infectious diseases, human migration, and more. And uh that's quite a list, isn't it? So the our current level of 1.1 is uh, already causing all of these effects. Um, And uh, what I found troubling is just in the last couple of weeks, I read a new report by the World Meteorological Association that found that there's a 50-50 chance that the average global temperature will uh, go over 1.5 degrees within the next five years, and that this likelihood will increase uh, in time unless the world starts taking much more aggressive action at limiting the burning of fossil fuels um, and perhaps the the key reason that scientists are recommending we keep warming to 1.5 degrees is that at one point five degrees scientists have been predicting that the heating will push many of the natural systems past tipping points. When we talk about tipping points, we're talking about a situation where a small change can trigger a larger, more critical change, uh, taking the climate from one state to another. This change can be abrupt and irreversible on timeframes that are meaningful to humans. Indeed, even at our current level of warming at 1.1 degrees, there's evidence that some tipping points have already been activated, such as the melting and disintegration of the West Antarctic Glacial System and uh, Arctic loss of sea ice and the melting of permafrost as examples. And there's also a risk that if we cross one of these tipping points, there may be a cascading effect where one tipping point activates another and we get sort of a domino effect of cascading tipping points that could push our planetary system from uh, what we're used to into something uh, very different that scientists often will call hothouse Earth. So tipping points are serious because once a planetary system has been tipped, um, even if we reduce fossil fuel emissions, it doesn't lead us back to the previous climate state. tipping points initiate a feedback loop where it's self-perpetuating, and then at that point, almost no matter what we do, um, the system uh, sustains itself. Since our present level of warming at 1.1 degrees is already showing evidence of active activating some of these tipping points, um, there's a chance that 1.5 degrees of warming is actually not safe at all. So, I think it's a mistake and uh, scientists are saying it may be a mistake to think that somehow keeping the global warming to under 1.5 is somehow safe. It's really kind of uh, the, a limit to where, you know, we will, uh, we're entering into territory that we really don't want to go. And uh, it just, uh, the scientists are really united in saying there's a lot of urgency in drastically reducing our burning. Of uh, Fossil fuels uh, immediately
0: so to amplify this t- uh, further too just to to continue to paint the the picture the global picture and just a, a very broad picture at that um, is understanding how the warming of the atmosphere impacts life support systems on the planet? Or what, or what are some things you're hearing in the news? What are some things you're hearing sort of in the background that, that you're aware of that are directly affected uh, by these warming trends? And uh, I'm gonna speak to that real briefly. One of them um, is is uh, what I call the hydrological cycle. I mean, you might remember in elementary school, a lot of us were taught you know, that clouds form. A precipitation falls and a precipitation comes in in many different forms colder you know rain sleet snow and that sort of thing and it can form ice pack um, it can fall in rivers and it falls on the land as we learned with our our colorful bulletin boards you know with raindrops and everything and as it falls on the land the land absorbs it or it might form the snow packs which later melt seasonally and um, uh, help feed streams and ponds and lakes and, and all of the water eventually heads down toward the ocean and the ocean um, receives a lot of precipitation and then it also creates uh, more clouds and so you've got this wonderful natural cycle that goes on and seasonally things change but it's in balance so what's happening as we see warming trends Uh, In the atmosphere is what I kind of call the hydrological cycle on steroids, Um, it has just jacked the whole thing up tremendously, and so a lot of what we're seeing are these huge huge storms. hurricanes, typhoons, cyclones, you know, that are forming up over, well, over the ocean, especially when you get large bodies of warmer water, you're going to be producing a lot of um, cloud formation and these storm formations, and they're just uh, absolute um, atmospheric rivers, and massive hurricanes that we're we've been seeing and once they slam into the land they turn into these hurricanes that go over the land and also these massive um, atmospheric river storms that just dump it, just enormous amounts of water in short periods of time and of course when that happens you get not only the uh, the effects of, of those storms themselves, but you get massive flooding, you can have. Um, Uh, You know, all kinds of um, mudslides and uh, uh, which create just tremendous amounts of damage um, that come from that and so you, you see that sort of cycle happening and on the other flip side. You think, well, hey, all of a sudden the land is covered with all this more water. What's the problem? Why do we continue to have drought like in the western part of the United States, for example, where we'll see more of these storms happening as atmospheric rivers hit the west coast and, uh, and sort of move across the west. But at the same time, we're living with over a decade of now a mega drought. So what's happening is that the warming over the land now sucks up all of that uh, moisture just as aggressively. And so it doesn't stay there in, in the, the deep sort of uh, water tables of the soil. It gets sucked up out of it. And so everything is just on steroids is the way I think about it. It's taken these natural cycles. It's overheating everything. It's just amped up everything. So that's one of the big impacts we see global. You'll hear about it and you'll hear those effects, but that's why you can have seasons of so much rain and still be in drought, for example. That's why we see these increased storms happening, especially over the ocean. Um, another thing that you'll hear about that sort of, again, big picture stuff is that uh, the polar vortex, it has, we, we talk about a split volar, uh, polar vortex now. Um, and, and just in very, very general big terms, you know, the, the, the vortexes are shifting. And what we thought of, uh, it affects things like uh, the jet stream. What we thought of as a normal jet stream affects uh, water uh, streams and wind cycles, you know, all around the planet. It's been pretty stable. And what's happening now, for example, with the jet stream is it's becoming wavier. Um, There are steeper troughs and higher ridges in in the jet stream, meaning weather systems progress more slowly. They raise the chances for long-duration extreme events like the droughts, the floods, and the heat waves. And the whole thing is just becoming wavier and a lot less stable. Um, And we're seeing a lot of those effects too, where seasonally, the things we can predict are no longer as predictable. The other impact is on life support systems. We talk in our faith system about air, water, earth, uh, fire, you know, these, these elements of the planet as well as uh, elements of our, of our spirituality. Well, air pollution is a really, uh, the air itself, um, when it's being polluted from fires, a lot of smoke from fires that extend globally, um, the medical community has been uh, noticing all kinds of increases in pollen, all kinds of increases in particulate pollution, all kinds of increases in asthma worldwide affecting human beings. It also affects animals, other animals as well. Water is a huge issue. You might hear about water wars, but water is a a major issue that's developing the scarcity of water on land, the depletion of water reservoirs, and also the acidification of our oceans as oceans warm, affecting fisheries around the world, affecting biodiversity. So we are a blue planet. You know, most of our planet consists of water. Uh, Global warming affects water. It affects food shortages, the ability to grow food, Um, regional areas where food in suitable climates are now changing. And so crops are changing. The degradation of the nutritive value of crops is changing, uh, is very much affected by warming, the introduction of new pests. Uh, parasites, insects that eat crops. I mean, bugs love warm weather. Bugs love warm water, stagnant water, and warm weather. Um, So we're seeing uh, all kinds of attacks on crops um, from uh, warming temperatures. And with human health, we're seeing diseases that that formerly were controlled, um, uh, many tropical diseases that have been arising once hurricanes and flooding uh sort of the worst part of the storm passes you can be left with lots of stagnant water and so we're seeing a lot of um, diseases that were once controlled uh, resurfacing and we're also seeing new novel diseases like hello coronavirus um, developing for which we don't have an experience with those diseases yet and these are being very much affected um, by not just like, you know, permafrost melting and, and that kind of thing, but by just the warming of the atmosphere itself. Each one of these light support systems is a podcast in and of itself that that deserves a deep dive. Again, I'm just giving you a global picture, a big picture. And of course, we hear an awful lot about biodiversity both on land and in the oceans being affected by warming migratory patterns of animals are changing. Uh, the warming temperatures disrupts reproductive seasons. Um, animals are are getting confused about when is winter, when is summer, when is spring, when is, you know, when is it time to mate, when is it time to birth babies? Um, we're seeing uh, an awful lot of effect on uh, biodiversity right now, both on land and in the oceans as a direct result of climate change and global warming. Another thing that's very much affecting uh, society, human society, is a lot of geopolitical instability that's uh, been occurring now for a while over resources. Um, We have parts of the world that are arguably becoming uninhabitable. Um, Their economies are shifting. People are getting desperate in really hot zones. And we're starting to see something develop called climate refugees. Uh, where people are being forced to migrate as well as other animals because they can no longer live and prosper where they used to. And so um, these are some of the the major life support system ways we see uh, these warming um, trends really affecting everything and everyone on the planet. You hear about these things in the news all the time. And part of the goal of talking about it in this way is so that you can start to see how all of these things are not unrelated events. They're all connected to this one sort of central phenomenon that's happening. So having said that, um, you know, Andrew, why don't you talk about uh, the IPC since the IPC IPPCs third working group on mitigation um, came out in April. We've been hearing more about this thing called carbon dioxide removal or CDR, and it really begs the question is is. You know, trying to cope with the warming that's already happened, in other words, mitigation and bringing global greenhouse gas emissions down enough, or do we are we really going to need c d r carbon dioxide removal
1: yeah, good question and uh first, let's take a look at uh, the i p c c which published the report that you mentioned um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, is an intergovernmental body of the United Nations. And it's responsible for advancing knowledge of uh, global warming or climate change. And it provides the world's probably the most authoritative scientific assessments on global warming. It provides policymakers with regular assessments of the scientific basis of global warming, its impacts and risks, and what are the options for cutting emissions and adapting to adapting to the impacts that we can no longer avoid. So, I've uh, studied that you refer to as on mitigation, which is about reducing the amount of greenhouse gases that are emitted into the Earth's atmosphere. So, first, I'd like to share just a little bit about. Uh, the two major greenhouse gases since um, understanding those will help understand how does our our carbon dioxide removal come into the picture. So uh, first I'll talk about methane. Uh, Methane is 100 times more potent uh, at warming than carbon dioxide. And um, about 80% of a particular methane emission is removed. So let's just take as an example one ton of methane. Uh, 80% of that one ton will be removed in the atmosphere by chemical reactions within 20 years. I think the warming effect peaks in seven or eight years, and then within 20 years, uh, that ton of uh, uh, methane uh, will be significantly less. So if we stop emitting methane, the atmospheric methane will start coming down uh, pretty quickly. So I I like the the metaphor of a bathtub. Uh, Adding methane to the atmosphere is like adding water to a bathtub that doesn't have a plug. You know, you're adding more, but within a short period of time, it decays and disappears within a relatively short period of time. So that means that cutting methane is a short-term strategy for bringing the average global temperatures down. If we are nearing a tipping point, for example, and we need to do everything possible to get uh, the temperatures down, uh, reducing methane emissions is the quickest way to do that. CO2, on the other hand, is not removed by chemical reactions and then has to be absorbed by the land and oceans, which takes a much longer period of time. When we emit a particular amount of CO2 into the atmosphere, we can use the example of one ton again. It must be absorbed by the land and by the oceans. And over a long period of time, there's still going to be more CO2 from that initial ton in the atmosphere. It it needs to be transitioned into into rock. And just an example of how long CO2 stays in the atmosphere, after 500 years, after we've admitted that ton of CO2, 28% is still in the atmosphere. After 10,000 years, 14% is still in the atmosphere. So um, CO2 stays in the atmosphere for an incredibly long period of time. This means that if we stabilize our CO2 emissions, meaning we're no longer increasing the amount of emissions but just keeping our emission rate stable, which we haven't achieved yet, um, the Earth will continue warming. It's, it's, It's like using the the metaphor of a bathtub again. This time there's a plug. Um, If we have a certain amount of uh, water in the tub, if we add more CO2, it's adding, even if we're not turning up the faucet to higher uh, velocity, but keeping it at a stable rate, the water level is still going to rise. If we reduce our CO2 emissions, the climate continues to warm because we're still continuing to add more CO2 to the atmosphere. This is like in a bathtub, we can turn the faucet down so we're not putting as much water in the bathtub, but it's still gonna be raising the level of water. So if we bring our emissions down to net zero, then we'll start to have cooling and that cooling takes again, a long period of time. And so the only way to get the existing CO2 out of the atmosphere is to somehow suck it out. And this is, would be like pulling the plug in the bathtub and letting the water drain. So that's why the IPCC's report on mitigation that was released in April of this year says that deployment of carbon dioxide removal is unavoidable for meeting targets. Because even if we get to net zero, whatever level of warming we're at at that point, that's pretty much locked in for a long period of time. So we need to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, Carbon dioxide removal falls under two categories. One is natural, such as soils and plants, and the other is technological, which is using technologies like carbon capture and storage. One of the concerns about carbon dioxide removal is that it is being advocated by countries like Saudi Arabia and the United States. And we found out uh, from leaks in the most recent IPCC uh, group that was meeting that uh, Saudi Arabia was the country that insisted on adding carbon dioxide removal to the final report. And the concern is is that if we start focusing on developing technology, it could take attention away from uh, swiftly getting our CO2 emissions down to zero. So carbon dioxide removal is not a replacement for bringing down our CO2 emissions. Um, The other thing is that the technology to remove CO2 is really untested. And it's nowhere near the scale that's needed. So right now, um, we have a short window of bringing our emissions down, and we don't have the technology to suck it out of the atmosphere. So at the present moment, we really need to focus on um, bringing down our CO2 emissions, uh, our methane emissions. and it still makes sense to to continue working on developing carbon dioxide removal and carbon capture and storage technologies because these will become crucial to a stable uh, climate in the future.
0: Thanks, Andrew. So I want to I want to pivot here and talk about some signs of positive change happening, and and I'm going to start by sort of framing it in terms of you know the three ways we can respond is either prevention mitigation or adaptation and i think a real positive is that more and more and more and more people now the whole the whole conversation around climate has shifted dramatically in the last five years even Um, and people are are starting to grasp the reality of what's happening i mean as of january 2021 um, the New York Times reported that a majority of registered voters in both parties of the United States support initiatives to fight climate change. And um, more than 99.9% of uh, peer-reviewed scientific papers agree that climate change is mainly caused by human beings. And that was October of 2021, last year, reported by Cornell University. That's a major shift. And so a real positive change that's happening is people are understanding if we can't utterly completely prevent this, we need to get aggressive about mitigation. And many, many communities are already focusing policies and support systems around adapting to climate. But we don't want to sit there and just say, hey, that's what we're going to do is adapt. It's like we're aggressively getting involved in mitigation and essentially trying to clean up this mess we've been making. And and do our best in a narrow window of time to start moving toward what's being called now a regenerative era and regeneration includes aggressive plans around mitigation. So you have to uh, do your best to adapt, but at the same time, using some of these um, uh, regenerative strategies in agriculture, you know, pivoting quickly. Uh, away from fossil fuels toward clean energy. So some of of the positive changes that are happening is that what's interesting is that in many countries that are not uh, burdened by um, uh, political lobbying and stalemates around this, they are pivoting uh, or or rapidly adopting uh, clean sources of energy very, very quickly. Um, they 're establishing green infrastructure grids very quickly and um, erecting solar uh, energy wind energy hydro energy, and growing uh, their economies and their infrastructure around that very quickly and so we 're seeing those come online um, the United states there are many coal fire plants that are closing uh, coal is is a dying industry in the US oil is being challenged it's in there lobbying strong and continuing to try to push itself um, and natural gas is now being challenged as well. Um, it, there's still a lot of government subsidy for it, but if that were to pivot toward now reinvesting that in research and development and rapid adoption of solar and wind and possibly hydro in some places energy, there is a lot of technological readiness for fast adoption of these things, and many, many communities are developing community choice energy programs that are challenging major utilities to draw more and more of their sources from clean energy sources as well. So um, there's a big, big movement going on now about getting major banks, investment banks, corporations to divest from fossil fuels and to reinvest in clean energy. And by the same time, they're also encouraging them to stop deforestation That is closely associated with fossil fuel, petrochemical and plastic development, as well as large industrial agricultural development, and to reinvest in clean energy sources. So these are major movements going on in the transportation sector, the energy sector. Many, many corporations are now being challenged by their consumers and shareholders to really live the values of not just sustainability, but regeneration. Um, And so these are major pushes that we can constantly be pushing for a fast, fast pivot to remove subsidy from fossil fuels, get taxpayers no longer paying to subsidize fossil fuels to continue to extract and expand, but instead to reinvest in research and development and fast adoption of clean, green energy uh, to really pressure large banking systems to divest from any fossil fuel development from any deforestation development and instead to reinvest in regenerative strategies, whether it's agriculture or fossil fuels. There's a huge, huge, big push around petrochemicals and plastics. We'll do a whole thing on that later coming up. Um, And one of the, one of the, this happens through through policy and governments, but it also happens through an awful lot of citizen pressure and consumer pressure. Big big pushes with corporations to be doing a lot of research and development, technological development around this as well. So, um, the the whole uh, plant based eating. That movement has been taking hold in the United States, especially not necessarily all parts of the world, but in the United states uh, that 's been taking off aggressively too, largely because of the impact of the way our food system currently is generated, how that imp- impacts these warming trends and wanting to help reverse that. So the whole regenerative farming movement, the whole plant-based eating movement, these are huge things that have been coming online um, and that are industry changers happening at the moment. Um, Transportation is looking very, very seriously from everything you hear about, the postal services, government vehicles, uh, public transportation, um, air transportation. All of these sectors are being forced to look at how they are fueling. Um, uh, their operations. And again, a lot of citizen pressure and corporate pressure uh, helps to push these things further, because we are fighting against big lobbying and big corporate interests that that is always there with our government system. That's quite clear. And it was quite clear with COP Uh, this last year as well corporate interests are in there and fighting so citizen pressure consumer pressure legislative action all of these things direct action are super important right now um andrew why don't you talk and specifically about something near to your heart dear to your heart which is the value and impact of direct action
1: yeah thank you for the question and uh thank you for sharing all of those positive uh movements that are happening uh, for, for a brighter future. Um, uh, direct action is, is something that's uh, very, uh, as you say, near and dear to my heart. Um, but there is a variety of ways that people can take action on climate change. And Charlotte, you mentioned some of those. Uh, uh, there's, I see them as things we can do personally, and then things that we can do to encourage government and industry to, to phase out fossil fuels. Uh, I'm sure that listeners are aware of things that we can do. Charlotte, you mentioned uh, uh, several of them, such as eating a plant-based diet or at least reducing the amount of meat and dairy. Uh, there's also reducing travel, especially air travel. There's driving electric or hybrid cars, drying your laundry on a clothesline outside, keeping your thermostat set lower in the winter and higher in the summer, and so on. And It's interesting to learn, however, where this focus on personal carbon footprint came from. I didn't know this until recently, but this was an intentional campaign developed by BP, or British Petroleum, as a way to get people to focus on their personal carbon emissions and try to take the focus off of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, which is an old playbook. I remember growing up as a boy. um, I was born in the mid-1960s, so this was probably in the 1970s sometime. I remember seeing a public service ad that featured a Native American man in a canoe, and it showed a lot of uh, pollution in a river, and then the camera kind of zooms in on a tear coming down his cheek. Um, we know that this campaign actually came from the beverage industry. Uh, the federal government was considering uh, putting deposits on bottles and cans, and uh, the beverage industry effectively um, shifted the focus from instead of corporations taking accountability for, the, for what they're producing to people taking responsibility for their personal actions so um, I think it's important just to, to know that uh, the focus on personal actions are often campaigns by, by corporations to take the focus off themselves. Now, that saying, I'm definitely not saying that we don't take personal action because it's really important that I think each one of us does everything we can to lower our carbon emissions and to be um, people that are caretakers Of the earth. Um, So we need to do those things but individual actions are clearly not enough. Charlotte, as you uh, alluded to, governments have been captured by the fossil fuel industry and I want to recommend that listeners check out the recent Frontline series on PBS called The Power of Big Oil.
0: Awesome, awesome
1: yeah so the power of big oil and this is a three-part series that uncovers the fossil fuel industry's effective efforts to make sure that there is no meaning political actions to limit and phase out fossil fuels so on the side you know overall andrew (laughs) i want to
0: i just want to interrupt you to to give that site people can find that if they uh if they search frontline www.pbs dot org slash video slash the power of big oil. There's parts one, two, and three. Excellent series. Must see. Thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even when all of this attention and pressure on banks and uh, lawmakers have been mounting, like you mentioned, Charlotte, um, there's a new report that showed that um, corporations, fossil fuel industry is in the process of hundreds of new projects that have been called carbon bombs because each one of these projects is expected to release at least a billion tons of CO2 emissions. So at a time when we need to be boldly phasing out fossil fuels and transitioning to renewables, the fossil fuel industry is marching forward, expanding uh, fossil fuel emissions, and they're being aided by governments with projects that will represent Uh, seriously represent an existential threat to human society and planetary life. So if our legislature doesn't work, um, sometimes we turn to the courts and we find that the the courts um, have been very limited in in their ability to uh, stop these fossil fuel projects. So in my opinion and experience and view, um, there does not seem to be any better alternative um, since the window of time is so small for bold action um, for pressuring uh, our governments and fossil fuel uh, corporations to take action. Um, There's there's nothing I, I believe that's more effective than taking direct action. Climate activists And climate activism have been growing in recent years in response to this urgency and the lack of action from world governments. We're all probably familiar with Greta Thunberg from Sweden and the climate strike movement. Uh, It's often called Fridays for the Future, where youth around the world will strike from school participation on Fridays to try to bring attention to uh, the need to reduce our, our carbon emissions and to try to pressure elected officials to take action. There's also Extinction Rebellion, which started in the UK, uh, whose activism includes uh, a lot of creativity, like uh, art, murals, sculpture, street puppets, uh, workshops, uh, clowning, and uh, things like that, a lot of street theater, but also, and importantly, disrupting traffic and disrupting the normal functioning of society. They block roads and bridges. They glue themselves to bank counters, bridges, government office doors, and so on. And a lot of people uh, shy away from this kind of action, and I'm not saying that everyone has to take this kind of action. Um, it's true that these kinds of actions, whenever we interrupt someone's life, if we're blocking traffic or blocking a bridge or interrupting the normal flow of, of daily life, it really does piss a lot of people off. And critics have said that these activists are actually turning people off from caring about the climate and are harming their own cause. Uh, interestingly, sociologists who have studied these campaigns, of uh, these organizations like Extinction Rebellion and most recently Just Stop Oil, and I encourage people to look up Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil on social media. Uh, They found that um, these disruptive techniques um, do piss people off, but the research shows that they do not stop people from caring about climate change. They do Bring the issue of climate change up on the news networks and in the media and get people talking about climate change. And additionally, they find that these disruptive acts of nonviolent civil disobedience, actually, uh, they've quantified it. It makes the public 2.6% more likely to take direct action themselves. So uh, these disruptive nonviolent civil disobedience campaigns uh, Uh, do not lose support in climate action, but they increase the amount of conversations that are happening about climate change, and they increase the recruitment of more people who are willing to take direct action. And I think if we take a look at the historic global struggles for change, such as the civil rights movement in the United States, the suffragette movement, anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, the abolitionist movement to end slavery and so on. In every one of these cases, it's been nonviolent civil disobedience that has had the power to create the change. It had not been happening through uh, changing laws and policy or the courts. It's been nonviolent civil disobedience that's created the conditions where politicians and courts feel that they, they got to take action So we do need bold action um, and uh, immediately. Uh, Change has not been working uh, fast enough through legislation or the courts. Um, It's going to take regular folks like you and me uh, taking nonviolent civil disobedience um, and connecting with groups who are doing that. Scientists, again, tell us that there's a rapidly closing window of about three to five years to start drastically drawing down our fossil fuel emissions in order to avoid catastrophic climate change, which does represent an existential threat to human civilization and life on the planet. So I have come to the conclusion that mass nonviolent civil disobedience is our best hope for a future that will sustain life.
0: Thanks, Andrew. And I'm going to add to that, because if you are someone who's not able to do direct action, uh, and I I support direct action, um, I I work full time, I hold down a household. Um, I'm not able to just be deployed to direct action all the time. And I don't want to feel like, well, there's nothing else that I can be doing. So along with along with in this, as some people have described, war with many battlefronts, needing many, many, many kinds of actions. Um, The other two most uh, significant types of activism or action that have been researched uh, is legislative action and digital activism. But how uh, the key to those things is constant, constant pressure. With very specific kinds of messages legislative action, whether it's with your city council, your county supervisors, your state legislators, your senators and representatives to federal government to administrations in the federal government to corporate lobbyists, this is legislative action where you are putting pressure on the people who have been voted to represent your needs. To protect you and your community against risk, that is their duty, and it is the grossest dereliction of their duty if they are not paying attention to that and are instead just kowtowing to their big super PAC contributors. So the big messages on legislative action is all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time, (laughs) communicating with them and sending one of two major messages. Either a champion message, which says, thank you for your bold um, stance, for what you did supporting these initiatives that are moving this needle in the right direction. You've got my vote. Or the threat message, which is, you know what? You're not listening to your constituents. You're a dereliction of duty. You're not protecting your community. We're going to vote you out. We need to replace your butt, you know? (laughs) So it's one of those two. Okay, people say, I'm not going to sit there and write all these letters. So here's the beauty. Digital activism, which was really grown through the pandemic, you know, worldwide marches in the climate movement, the climate, the climate people's movement, which has become the nexus of of all of the socio economic, political and climate justice movement put together that really, really grew. From 2017 on, we've seen these massive marches, which in and of themselves don't change policy, but they build community and solidarity. I've been a mentor now since 2017 of new climate activists every year. And what also is it's important to keep generating, generating and generating more Unusual, just normal people like us who find ourselves doing unusual things now because the times dictate that. More and more people have come into activism who never identified as activists before in the past few years. And digital activism has really also opened that up. One of the best things that you can do right now is go to either the Mac Store or Google Play and download the Climate Action Now App. It is being endorsed by more and more climate action organizations. It is super easy to use. It survives on donations. If you want to donate, great. If you can't give any money at all, fine. You have unlimited use. And what it does is it takes your profile and it particularizes who all of your uh, represented officials are at the local, state and federal level, what all of the current bills and uh, initiatives are who all the corporations are you want to talk to. And what they say is just do five actions a day. It takes less than five minutes. Five actions a day times 365 days a year. Look how all of a sudden you'll be contributing consistently, consistently, consistently. And every time you use the app, you're helping to contribute to planting more trees and doing drawdown of decarbonization as well, which is a a side effect of using the app. And you will get, if you want, a report every month about how all the actions on the app have been making a difference with regard to policy changes. I see it happening in California, where we just did another push to move through a bunch more legislation at the state uh, legislature around climate. Climate Action Now app combines digital activism with legislative action. And if when you're able to do direct action, awesome. If you can't, you can do this Every day, and you can start to make a difference and make it a part of your personal spiritual practice, just like anything else you're doing is a personal practice uh, to to speak truth to power and to keep it up. Well, thank you, Andrew, so much for helping me with this conversation that wraps up our time for this installment of Blue Marble podcast. Thank you to our audience for listening and thank you so much uh, to our producers. Reverend Jeanette and David Ewing, Um, you can always download Past Blue Marble Podcasts on the CSNP network, www.blogtalkradio.com slash CSNP, or you can follow on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash podcasts. Uh, we uh, air live on the third Friday of every month at 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern times. Um, once again, I'm your host, Reverend Charlotte Baer. If you value what you've heard here today, please pay it forward by sharing this information with others. Blessed be. Earth my body, water my blood. Hear
1: my breath and fire my
0: spirit. (laughs) for joining us on the circle sanctuary network podcasts presented by circle sanctuary and produced for all who follow the nature center paths join us here throughout the week for various programming connecting the community around the world and please don't forget to watch for updates on the circle sanctuary website at www.circlesanctuary.org and follow us on facebook facebook.com slash CSN podcasts we can also be found on your favorite podcast hosting sites such as iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and others. And until next time, many blessings.